All right, everybody, welcome back to Into the Macroverse. And for your listening pleasure, and for those who've been following the series with both Jacob and I, the Macroverse Maniacs ourselves, this is the final episode on the Stan miniseries from the 1990s. Yes, this is the Mick Garris version of the Stand, which is one of Stephen King's longest, I think it is his longest novel. And it is highly beloved among other fans of Stephen King and the works. So without further ado, this is the last episode of The Stand. So let's get into it. Cue that open. You are now listening to Into the Macroverse, a comprehensive, all-in deep dive into the Stephen King cinematic universe. We are your hosts, Jacob Willett and Levi Hill, here to transport you to the multidimensional playground known as Stephen King's Macroverse. Please kick back, put on your favorite pair of noise-canceling headphones, and join us as we journey into all right thank you for joining us as you know i'm i'm uh, I'm not jacob i'm levi i'm levi no i'm jacob (laughs) but welcome back and this is the last time we're going to talk about stan for a little bit yeah it's going to be a little bit we are going to talk about the 2020 version that came out and that one's nine episodes so hopefully we'll be able to do a nice little nine episode run but for now Mm. We have our final episode of the 1994 Stand, the final episode titled The Stand. You know, what were your initial feelings on this episode? Because I'll be honest with you, I was pretty underwhelmed. I was also kind of underwhelmed because I feel like the first two episodes had some pretty incredible pacing, I would say, because it it was really slow and steady, but it felt like it was building up to something so big. And then we get to this final episode, and it kind of almost feels like things are winding down before they're winding up. It really does. I mean, we see a lot of flag, and we get to see a lot of his backstory, but it felt really rushed. Like, we cut out a lot of everything. Real choppy again, like episode three. It's kind of everywhere. And I, I personally was just a little bothered by that. I was like, you know, you could spend a little time right here and not just focus on this one person who really didn't matter for, you know, a little bit. Yeah, it it kind of tends to deviate away from what you're wanting to see. And that can be a good thing sometimes, but in the case of the stand, it definitely detracts because for the first two episodes, I was like blown away by the length and just everything that this episode had to offer, this whole series really. And then it kind of just went a little bit downhill story driven there was drama building up you know we were we were speculating on these characters a lot made sense and then it just kind of fell off you know they were really trying to i felt like they were really pressured for time whenever they were filming this in 1994 and they decided to cut out a lot because they focused way too much on like i guess littler details in the first two where that didn't really affect the end I have to assume that there must have been something to do with the budget. Maybe they exhausted most of their budget in the first two episodes. Or maybe the director was told that it couldn't go past the six-hour mark. Because not many people in 1994 wanted to binge a six-hour series. That wasn't really until the streaming era that binging 
and like long mini series are more normalized. Yeah, but you know what? It is what it is. So let's get into what happened this episode. So it starts off on a note that I actually was pretty happy with. We both kind of speculated early on that Harold would get his would be brought to justice. He would kind of get what he deserved. But before his that, just we kind desserts. of yes, his just desserts. But before that, we kind of thought that he was going to have a turnaround, and he didn't have the turnaround we expected. He kind of changed into the villain when we kind of expected him to step up and become one of the heroes of the series. I had my hopes up for him so much, only to just you know, okay. As much as we didn't like him and that god-awful jacket, that god-awful jacket. We're never going to stop talking about how horrible that, that jacket was. It's that like was the main antagonist of the stand, was yes. suddenly the superfood gave everyone a terrible sense of fashion. It looks like he had a four-year-old bedazzle the really cheap leather jacket from the bargain bin at Ross. It looked like, it looked like he was like, hey man, you ever seen Mad Max? Let's not make it cool. Yes, let's just ruin it. And for some reason... Harold just doesn't take the jacket off. It's just one of... I guess he just thinks it makes him cool. But no. In most cases, it does. In most cases, you can add an instant cool factor to any movie character with a leather jacket. But in the case of Harold, no. No. And we open up this episode with, like you said, Harold getting his just desserts. And that's him seeing Flag for the first time. With really like his, big teeth. Yeah. Yeah, he, he was going full tusk mode. Yeah. And, and it was just a vision, we assume. It was. He was there for maybe half a second. Yes. And that is just enough time for Harold to veer off the road and launch about 70, 80 feet down a hill. He breaks his ribs. He rolls down. He smashes his leg against a rock. And it was he just, I thought it looked like a tree stump. I think it was a tree stump, actually, yeah. And he just lays... He, he hit the rock on the way down, and then the tree stump. Oh, yes. He got a lot of hits to his side and his legs and to his chest. And then he just kind of lays there like a little pitiful baby. Being like, He laid there and, and asked for Nadine to help out. And she just kind of looking at him with her 90s scarf on. Yeah, let's slow down and talk about Nadine's costume in this scene. Oh, Lord. I, it's it's kind of cool. I don't, he has I don't, that, I'm a spy reporter look. Yeah, it's very odd. And I don't know, I feel like in like a time where you're trying to fly under the radar, wearing a uh, bright pink jacket. And a motor, or is it a bright pink jacket? Oh, no, bright pink motorcycle. It's a little odd. Where did they find that? Yeah, I was wondering that too, because that's not one of those things that you would just stumble upon. I feel like a bright pink motorcycle would be rather hard to find anywhere. I don't even see them, you know, where we are. And we live in like a place where motorcycles are kind of a big culture around here. Yeah, I mean, it's it feels like a spectacle to see a Volkswagen bus here in California. And so if someone saw a little pink motorcycle like that, I, I don't think it would have been just sitting out in the street. I feel like that would have been locked in a house somewhere. But we get to see good old Harold die. Uh, he's laying down there, you know, almost bleeding out, I guess. He knows he's going to die because he can't move. He might succumb to the elements. 
But he does have a moment of redemption. He does write that he was sorry. Yeah, he has he has some sudden regrets. And all it took was a few broken ribs for him to realize that he didn't do the right thing. Ugh. Harold. Yeah, come oh, on. You, you had so much time to learn your lesson. You could have done it in any other way. And you just had to go and kill our favorite character, Nick Andros. And did you notice that he was always still kind of mean to Nadine? Like, regardless that he slept with this woman and she just gave him everything that he wanted in the world, he was still pretty, you know, cold to her. Yeah, even when he was begging for her help, he was still kind of just like, hey, I deserve this help. Yeah. And thankfully, Nadine was like, no, I'm not going to help you here. Sorry, I have things to do. And she carried on. But of course, we are skipping one very important detail about what happens when he crashes. And what's that? How about Stu? When Harold crashes his motorcycle, Stu like jolts and he just knows that something is wrong. He does. He can feel it. He's got this connection with um, good old Harold. Yeah. And we don't really know where this uh, connection comes from. They kind of play with the rules of telepathy rather lightly mm-hmm. in this episode where it's like you don't know why Stu and Harold are linked up because before that, they weren't. They didn't like each other at all. And then suddenly when Harold's on his death... I was going to say deathbed, but he's on the death ground. <laughs> he's on his death dirt. Yes, he's just in a little patch of dirt. And for some reason, Stu has this sense and just immediately relays to his group that something happened to Harold. And of course, the group really doesn't care at this point. They couldn't be bothered what happens to Harold after he basically just ruined the entirety of their lives. He really did. And before that, we find out that um, our four main characters, uh, it's Glenn, Stu, uh, good old Ralph, my personal favorite, Larry, and they were sent to go stop Flag. They were. They're on their mission going down to Las Vegas, Nevada to go defeat Randall Flag. From Boulder, Colorado. That's a pretty long walk. That is a very long walk. And I think they are walking for most of it. Yeah, they, they, I don't think they, they drove in at all. They walked the whole way. I don't know how someone does that. But I don't know. I feel like if you're about to spring into battle, walking several hundred miles isn't really the best thing because from what we know these cars they work still they do have gasoline a lot yeah, of them have them in the ignition and and it's not like they don't know how to start a car i mean larry does oh yeah he has and no problem can, apparently they walk the whole way there but along the way yeah Stu does get that almost telepathic feeling that something went wrong with uh, uh Harold. and then yes. we're taken to lloyd who is not the Ratman. That is my mistake. I said he was earlier. He's not. Ratman is actually a more minor character. I just assumed he was because of how he was eating the rat and what he ate the rat. Yeah. Yeah. It's a little bit cruel of you to associate him as the Ratman because he ate a rat. I mean, I mean, that's what Randall called him. That's fair. Yes, he did. But no, we realized it was very quickly that they are both different characters. Uh, the actual Ratman doesn't really play all that much of a role, weirdly enough. He's he's a very minor character who uh, is is there for 
couple minutes, he just kind of waves a gun around. But we'll get to him in a minute. Let's talk about Lloyd. Lloyd is listening for a a car. He's waiting to hear back from the squad out in a different part of town outside of Las Vegas to for to catch one of the three spies who is Judge Richard. Yes. And he is out driving around when he realizes that there's a car behind him. But before that, there is a scene with Lloyd and another new character, Dana. Yes. Now, so, Dana was sent out there. She's, she, she's, we, we haven't really heard much of her up until this point, no. which is kind of strange that they really throwed her onto us like we were supposed to be this pivotal person. We're like, oh, and, wait, Dana from episode one. Yeah, what's what she doing here? I remember you. Yeah, but she's a new character, and it appears that, that she and Lloyd have a thing going. But Randall Flagg knows that Dana has some crucial piece of information, and so he's added her to his operation. But that's not before... Um, I'm sorry, that's after we find out that Randall didn't want the judge killed. He wanted him brought in. Yes. Taken and, alive. And he's watching this unfold. He, he's in crow form, watching a car chase between some of his minions who are led by Lloyd, his arch minion, as we can call him. Yes. And they go and find Judge, and they shoot him up, and Randall gets very upset because he he wanted the information that Judge had on who else Boulder sent. Yes, because what we find out is that Randall Flagg does not know of the third spy. He knows that there... Not yet. He knows that there is one. But all he knows is M-O-O-N. And here's one of the best pieces that I've seen of Randall Flagg. He literally eats this man. He's so angry. Oh, yeah. He, oh, he was, I've never seen Randall Flagg. That was actually the maddest he was, like, in this entire episode. Because it almost seems like he needed this, uh, this crucial piece of the picture judge, the judge, to figure out what was happening. Because as we start to realize, they are actually at a disadvantage compared to our leading group. Without a shadow of a doubt, they are. Because here, they feel like um, a lot of people are losing faith from what we can tell in the small interactions of Lloyd with some people in Flag. Yes, they are starting to kind of doubt his powers while he commands them what to do, and he sits comfortably in his... Penthouse suite, I believe. He has some sort of penthouse suite that he's he's cooping up in. Yeah, he's got his cool little his his kickback. Yeah. Kickback. I'd say it's kickback. I'd say so, yeah. But um so with that in mind, we find out that Dana is a spy as well. He lets Lloyd know and Lloyd just absolutely loses it because he's like, Oh no, I've literally been sleeping with the enemy. Yeah, and As we know, Lloyd 100% fears Randall Flagg to death. He fears him and is willing to follow him to a T. And I'm like, all right, well, you know, this is kind of interesting. I I honestly did expect a lot more out of Lloyd. Like when I saw him, I expected him to be, you know, a little bit more menacing. He was in prison. Yes, but he's kind of not. He's not very assertive. Maybe he wasn't in prison for all that long. Maybe. But at the end of the day, um, they drag in Dana 
and she doesn't make it out. No. And it's because... rather... Go, go ahead. No, you go ahead. All right. I think it's interesting because we see Randall gets mad at her for not telling him who this third spy is because he knew who the first two were. Yes, he was able and to piece together the first two. Because mm-hmm. he can see, basically, like we said, we can generally read people's thoughts and whatnot, so it's assumed that he knew what these guys were up to and knew that people were coming after him, but didn't know of this third spy. No. And knowing that she can't leave this room unless she tells Randall who it is, she instead opts to take her own life via glass. Yes. She um she breaks off a piece of I don't know what the glass piece was to begin with. It was some sort of decor. But it she was just on his pillar counter. Yeah. But she basically just kind of slits her throat to ensure throws that throws herself onto it, yeah. Throws herself onto it, yes, to ensure that Randall Flagg doesn't figure out who that final spy is. And it was pretty but, brutal. Yes. It was. I, I wasn't expecting that, but then from there, we do find out who the spy is. We do. And that is actually one of our favorite characters, Tom Colin, a.k.a. What's the actor's name again? I, it was a mouthful. Oh, sorry B- about that. Bill Fazerbach. And that is actually the voice of Patrick Starr, which yeah. is a fun piece of information we found out before we started recording this. And, and not to say that this is the Patrick Star. He's been Patrick Star since the beginning of SpongeBob. So just a little bit of tip information about, you know, good old Tom. Yes. That was a, that was a fun little piece of information to realize because you kind of can, you can uh, detect the voice a little bit. That little classic Patrick Star voice. Yeah. And we see that he's leaving Las Vegas, but he bumps into an old familiar face. That familiar face being the woman who attacked both him and Nick earlier. I believe it was in, C- in episode two. It was episode two, yes. That's Yuri Lardy. And she recognizes him and goes to tell Lloyd, who kind of brushes her off as some crazy woman. Yes, they, they really don't really want to hear anything she has to say, because they can tell she's crazy, too. Oh, without a shadow of a doubt, she's all kinds of nuts. But... She um, she figures it out and goes to let him know. And now we're set to our good folks, do Gary, Ralph, and Larry. Yes. And let's. And their crusade to go to Las Vegas as they're trudging through, walking, becoming the best of friends along the way. And they come to this divot in the road, almost like a little mini canyon made by flag, or a fault line. Something happened and piece of the road is missing. It's a big little uh, divot in the earth and they go down but can't get up. Yes. Although I think we did miss one thing or it's happening at the same time. We have to flash back again to Harold. I know we all hate talking about him. Oh, but he is... Kid. Yeah, it's, it's painful. It really is hard to look at. It almost just looks like he has a bunch of pox popping up on his skin. They look like skin lesions. But he is sitting here writing his suicide note where he says, I'm sorry, I was misled. And And he says this before taking out a Colt Python and ending it all. Ending it, yeah. 
And then right as that happens, we have our our Fab Four. We have Ralph, Glenn, Stu, and Larry, and the dog. What's the dog's name? Uh, I forget what the dog's name was, but it was um. Either way, good dog. Oh, you're right. Um, yeah, it was it was, it was uh, Gary's dog to begin with. Oh no, yeah, yes. no, no, Glenn's. It was Glenn's. Glenn. I'm sorry. Yes, it was Glenn's dog. And yeah, Glenn's as they dog. are walking, we have Larry carrying his little guitar. And Stu, again, does that jolt, and he's like, it's Harold. He's dead. And I find it funny, because everyone kind of looks at him like, okay, why do, why do we care? We didn't like him anyways. But it's important to kind of note that telepathic link between the two characters that we're probably going to go into a little bit later. Yes, and it's important also to note that Stu doesn't know why he knows it. No, he has no idea. So, and I'm sure he loses sleep over that. <laughs> so while they're on this crusade, which I still think is insane that they walked all this way, and Larry carried a guitar all that way. That's Yeah, and that poor dog, too. Kojak. His name was Kojak. Kojak. There we go. Not Cujo. Not Cujo. A little bit different. Not a St. Bernard, but in fact, not a, is it a He's, golden retriever? Yeah. Yeah. Good obedient dog. He's just a good boy. Best of boys. Very good boy. <laughs> but uh, they get down to this divot and they realize they got to climb up, but it's a little steep. So Stu takes the uh, reins of going first. He gets up all the way there, gets cocky at the top, and then takes a bit of a tumble down. Which, uh, let's talk about that tumble. How did you feel about that? It was... It was a little weak. I'm actually looking at it right now. You did skip about 25 minutes ahead. But it didn't look like he needed to fall there. It looks like he would have been fine. And he just like has one one little slip at the very top. He goes and like he looks at he looks at them. He's like, I made it. And then he, he cheers and then slips. And he rolls back down. Yeah, he he like it looks like the ground beneath him like moved ever so slightly and he just lost his entire balance. It, it didn't seem like that big of a fall to me. No, I mean, it's certainly enough to break a leg. But if he didn't turn around and be like, look, guys, I made it, he would have been fine. But we did skip a little bit of important stuff before that. Um, so Trash Can Man, as we know, is kind of tormented by this um, this past trauma. Apparently, I, I would assume he was bullied pretty heavily as a kid. I think he had schizophrenia to a degree. Something like that, yeah. And he keeps hearing voices in his head, and he just kind of flees the the place. He yeah, flees they're the facility out in, uh, what was it, in Indian Springs? Yes, Indian Springs. He kind of, he gets a little bit freaked out. He burns down the uh, the entire facility that they're building this plane in. And then just drives away on a little, on a little uh, not an MTV, what's it called? ATV. ATV. Thank you. For ATV four-wheeler. And he drives away, has this little Mad Max moment that we all wanted the whole time. Ah, oh, yes. He had the best explosions throughout the whole film. He had that classic action movie style he, going he past did, the explosion. Yes. And that, that was really cool to me, too, watching him do that. But he has this moment, everybody figures it out from Flag's camp. And like, can we say it was camp? Las Vegas camp? Yeah, it's kind of like a compound. Whatever. Yeah, it was a compound. But everybody figures it out because they all radioed in that Trash Can Man kind of lost it. 
and she's out there wherever. Yes. And then we don't really know where he goes from there. He just kind of dips out and is like, I'm done with this. And then, like we said, Stu breaks his leg and makes the ultimate decision that he's going to stay back, like Mother Abigail warned him that one of them will get left along the way. Now, you are still pretty far ahead. You did you did skip another 20 minutes or so. Before that, we have the moment with Randall Fly and Nadine. And they have... I don't know if you're just trying to skip that, because I don't blame you. They have their little intimate moment together. Oh, we'll, we'll discuss it. I thought that came afterwards, but I could be wrong. No, it's, it's right and after this is This is a trigger warning if you're listening. If you're listening, you can go ahead and skip past this little bit. But essentially, after... The Herald incident, we uh, Nadine sees Randall again, and she immediately wants to get intimate, but then thinks of Larry and said, doesn't want it anymore, and Randall forces himself upon her yes. in order to have make her have his child. Yes, and because he is basically the spawn of Satan, Nadine is basically immediately pushed on to like the fifth or sixth month of pregnancy. Like, it's, it's very oh, rapid. Oh, oh, yeah. Like, it just almost seemingly happens overnight. And then the, the moon turns bright red. A little cool blood moon. It was definitely eerie. Like, under, like here we see Randall changing to his form, which which is interesting. We'll talk about that later on, how, we, how I said that maybe Randall's got a second, or, like, you know, this ultimate form. When I was right, he is able to change into this more demonic-looking form. Yes, he literally does just look like Satan, basically. It's it's demented, it's gross, and it's not anything like, you know, he isn't cool looking, he loses that whole facade of, you know, swagger, and changes yes. out for something really disgusting. It, it's almost like a buggish, I guess you would say. He almost kind of looks like, like when you look at like an ant in the micros- microscope. <laughs> what I also found interesting was, unlike, you know, other creatures that are depicted, you know, in, in movies and whatnot, especially Stephen King... Uh, he didn't have a cat eye. No. Instead, which was different, which caught my eye, he had goat eyes. Yes, and I, I think that's cool, because we do know that in like biblical lore, goats tend to have a little bit of a satanic presence sometimes, or they're associated with Satan. And so, so it's kind of like, interesting to see that, like, he, that, like, that like, little, little bit of evil in him, you know what I mean? Like, like yeah. you know, he's evil that, that, that much in him. Yeah, but yeah, but yeah. After um, that little, I guess you could say fiasco. For those who are listening, uh, it's safe to come back now. Trigger warning over. Yes, we are back, and now we are at the point where it looks like the our four our four man group they took a little break at this little cabin area, and they continue moving on, and they're yep. in Utah at this point. It was a long walk. Yeah, to go from Colorado to Utah is still a to good Utah to then to Nevada. Yeah. They must have been on the road for a while. I have to assume it was at least a few days. Maybe a week, maybe, you know, business week. Yeah, I would say. We don't really know because if you haven't noticed from this episode, keeping track of the time is not easy. No, actually... a lot of a lot of time kind of goes over and goes back. It's very disorienting, and that's probably one of our biggest problems with the last two episodes, is that we're so like dependent on the sense of time. 
and they kind of just throw it all over the place. And it makes it really hard to keep tabs on what's happening. All we know is that most of these things happening in the first half of the episode are all basically happening at the same time. It's something. And so our four leave this small little area in, what was it, Ohio? Which I don't really know what was a big point of them chilling for a little bit. Definitely not Ohio. Um, I believe it was it was Utah. Utah, Ohio. They were traveling cross-country. Yeah, either, either way, they were making that cross-country trek. And then after this is the point where it goes back over to Las Vegas, to the hideout. And this is where... Um, is it Nade? It's someone's trying to... Is that what they're trying to warn of that third face? Yeah, that was when Nadine was trying to... Uh, shoot. Escape. Sorry. Yes. And so, yeah, we, we get back because um, Flag took her back, actually. Himself. Yes. He brought her from wherever she was to Las Vegas, and everybody was kind of making this big deal about it, and he apparently married her? Yes, uh, he did all that on himself, because if you look at Nadine now, her character's kind of completely changed. She looks, like, oh, completely terrifying. She's a broken. broken woman. Yeah. But at the same time, uh, the crazy the crazy one's back. The girl. Uh, what was her name again? Julie Lowry. Jew- she was the Julie one Lowry. who talked about, um, who saw good old Tom. And made him think he was going to be poisoned by Pepto-Bismol. <laughs> that, that character. And here she is. She's trying to warn Lloyd that she ran into Tom Cullen and that he's the final spy. But of course, Randall's so caught up with his little fake marriage thing that no one's giving her the chance to speak and explain well, it's not, what's happening. It's not that, but she was also terrified of him and wanted Lloyd to talk to him about it. Yes, that as well. I mean, I don't blame her. Uh, man's very intimidating. It's even just his walk, Reeks, that he doesn't care about you. Yes. It's just so, and, so self-assured, self-confident. And Lloyd fails to tell him about Tom, which, I mean, he had all the time in the world to tell him. He did, and then he just didn't really seem to find it all that important. See, some of the character motivations throughout this series are a little bit off, I would say. Like, you would you would think that Lloyd would find it more important to explain what's happening here. But he yeah, and, and it's just kind of interesting to notice that, you know, apparently mentioning the spy that you've been looking for isn't as important as... As Randall would put it, you know how newlyweds are. <laughs> what a horrible line. I mean, this poor, poor Nadine, just, just, uh, we'll get into that later, how she just looks terrible. Yeah, she kind of looks like, um, it's like her hair changes, actually. Like, does she not get kind of blonde? Uh, I think it was just more distressed than anything, or maybe, maybe. her hair was dirty. I don't know. It just she she looks broken to like the point of like mania almost because the elevator closes on her mouthing something off, and then uh, Julie Lowry is all mad at Lloyd for not explaining the fact that Tom Cullen is on site. They mouth that they were going to die, all yes. of them. Mm-hmm. And then Randall Flag is back upstairs again, all happy to be with his new wife. He's singing. He's dancing. You know how he is, his attitude. I think you missed the part with Trash Can Man. Did I? Because we find out where he went. And where did he go? 
That would be a military underground bunker with access. No, that is my bad. Yeah, we're almost there. See, like, again, audience, it's a little bit confusing to keep tabs on the sequence of events. I'm just excited. Yes, you're excited. But this is a very important scene that we can't skip over. Lloyd is up there trying to go and talk to um to Randall, but Randall's busy poking Nadine's tummy and talking about how happy he is to be married and stuff. And then Nadine is just very, very, very distressed and unhappy. Really and gaslighting it, and antagonizing her. Yes. And I mean, anyone that is in that room can tell she does not want to be there. But who's going to tell Randall Flagg that? And even Lloyd looks just... You know, in a way, disgusted at Randall Flagg. He's yes. like, oh my gosh, this is too far. Yeah, it's like, you were bad enough when you killed 95% of the population, but this this is too much for Lloyd. Yeah, again, it's almost like Lloyd really reached his breaking point there. That's when he realized that, you know, he knows he's in the wrong team now. Yes, and it seems pretty common with, like, most of the uh, the, the bad alliance they all kind of start to regret what they've done, who they've sided with, because they realize what they're messing with. You don't oh, make a double. Yeah. But he's over here drinking his, I think it's a gin or something. Gin and right. tonic. Drink yeah. of champions. Drink of champions. And he's trying to have a speech and talk to them and everything. And again, you look at Nadine, and she's just, she's barely alive at this point. There's re- she's really giving that thousand-yard stare. And it's just so you know, heartbreaking to see she is so broken and Randall just keeps pushing the envelope. Mm-hmm. Over and as, over and over. As she's broken and Lloyd asks for a drink, he looks at her and then says, ah, you know, you're pregnant, can't have drinks. <laughs> and then the water starts boiling. He throws the gin and tonic all over the hotel and he transforms back into his demonic buggy self. And if you want to ask why he did this, that's because Lloyd tells him, hey, we found our, uh, that crazy girl, Julie. Well, she found the third guy and describes him. And it's our boy, Tom, who, as we know, is slow. He's got a couple disabilities. Yeah. And Randall could not see him because of it. Yes. All he really knew was the M-O-O-N. So it was nice to see them finally kind of tie back, like why he keeps saying M O O N, and then we realized that because of his um his reduced, what's the word I'm trying to say his his reduced mental capacity, Randall Flagg can't tap into his mind and try to read him, and that really bothers Randall Flagg knowing that there's something that's out of his power, out of his grasp, because Randall Flagg's kind of the guy that just wants everything, and knowing that the spy left safely nobody knows what he looks like or who they're after angers him and he throws the tonic starts throwing around lloyd himself beats him up a little bit gives him a good roughing up and tells him yeah oh oh, it was rough and then tells him that you know what at the end it doesn't matter about that guy find the three people who are coming and bring them in alive yeah, he says, send out a hundred men. So he basically wants a whole army to go out there and find these people. And it's at this point, he says, but also bring in Trash Can Man. And when you do, 
take them out quick. Because yes. as evil as Randall is, he still has compassion for Trash Can Man, who in a way is like his version of Tom, if you think about it. Yeah. He he really likes um, Trash Can Man. It's he said he has a kinship of, with him. Yeah, I think it's because Trash Can Man himself is a bit of a harbinger of chaos. Mm-hmm. And, and here is where we see where Trash Can Man went. But before that, we start to see Nadine walk towards the balcony. Yes. As Randall Flagg is standing there, he turns Lloyd's uh, necklace, the one that he turned the key into before, he changes it from a key back to that little egg-looking crystal thing, and then back to the key, and then the egg again. And in that time, he fails to recognize that Nadine is hanging off the ledge. Yeah, she... she... It totally takes the advantage of Randall flexing to Lloyd, essentially, yes. puffing out his chest, climbs on top of the balcony, and Lloyd leaves. Randall sees this, goes to her, tells her to calm down, come back in, give her whatever she wants, and she said that, can you give me Larry? Yes. Which and I think is kind of ironic, considering that, you know, she had Larry and still didn't want him. Yes, I guess she she must have just been too tempted by by Randall Flagg just decided to kind of leave Larry. Poor Larry, man. He didn't deserve that. No, he didn't. He was a good man. Yes. But then right before this this final moment with, with um, Nadine, she reveals that basically all of his inferiors, all of his loyal followers are starting to doubt his capabilities. Because everything's kind of going wrong for him. Throughout the series, everything is just not working out for him. He kind of failed to have that power over Mother Abigail. Oh, he, yeah. I mean, we, we look at, you know, Sin City, you know, Las Vegas is kind of not what it turned out to be. I mean, people are living and thriving, but at the same time, everyone's kind of having these whispers because he did just lose his planes. Everybody knows that. And apparently these people are coming, and there is a spy that got away who was... Uh, under his nose the whole Into, time. Yeah. And above all else, like like Nadine said, you know, Tom was mentally handicapped. So, you know, how does that make you look? Essentially is what she told him. Yeah, she kind of hit him in this, his toxic masculinity type pride that he had going on. And then right as he goes to reach for her, she falls off the roof. And there's a lady down there that's working doing whatever she was tasked to do, dressed exactly like Tom Cullen was actually when he, when he was working there. And she just watches Nadine crash to the ground and die. It was a nasty crash, too. It was. And that was, that was no joke of a drop. I mean, at least... Unlike, was, unlike Harold's. Unlike Harold and unlike <laughs> the future crash of Stu. Morty. <laughs> so here, Randall is absolutely beside himself even more. He just lost his child. Yes. He had, and he had a son or daughter father. on the way. His wife. Yes. He lost his wife. Yes. Although it, it kind of feels wrong to call her his wife just because you know, she didn't. She had well, no I mean, like in his that. eyes. In his, his eyes, wife. yeah. In his power-hungry eyes, he lost his wife and his child which we assume was probably going to be due at any moment, because for some reason the pregnancy phase kind of kind of speeds up when you're the spawn of Satan. Yeah, it just kind of, you know, enhances itself. 
Yeah. And I then, mean, we don't know. We don't know the birthing process of a demon. We don't. It hasn't really been recorded anywhere. Uh, you can try Wikipedia, but I wish you the best of luck. Uh, scholarly articles only. Uh, I'm just kidding. Yeah, scholarly journals only. But now, now we get to talk about the trash can man. Yes, he is at the. It's called. Oh, there's a name for the place that they put briefly on the captions. It's like Potok Naval Center or something. Nuclear Center, I think it's called. And yeah. he's driving around on his golf cart. Not a golf his cart. ATV. His ATV. Uh, lugging around a big giant A-bomb. Well, not first he went in it. We have scenes of him going inside saying bomb-bidi-bomb, bomb-bidi-bomb. He's looking for something called the Big Fire. Biggest Fire. And he finds an A-bomb. Yes. And that A-bomb, he sees, gets attached to it, and immediately wants to take it back to flag. Yes, he. I think he must feel some sort of remorse for destroying the last base after he had that little episode of freaking out. Oh yeah, he's getting got some, you know, deep-seated regrets. Yes, I don't think he was happy with the way he did that because he was pretty loyal to Flag. He was. He was. He was definitely all in with Flag. But then I guess you could say Flag pushed the envelope again with how far he could use that madness because he was definitely manipulating his mind. I think. Definitely, no doubt about it. And with that, we get the um, trash can man blowing up the planes and now found a bomb. Yes, everything's kind of working out for the trash can man, actually. He's getting to live out his greatest fantasies of blowing up bombs and avoiding the voices in his head. Yeah, I mean, granted, he looks a little scuffed up, but he's fine. He's a little scuffed up, but it also appears as if he's like, dehydrated it seems like he's like not really drinking water because his skin's all like dried up and his body's kind of decaying so i think if anything maybe he just like stopped drinking water or something it definitely dehydrated out there yes i mean it is nevada i don't know if you've ever walked out there for more than five minutes i haven't actually you don't tell us about your nevada stories so i mean i went to the hoover dam and i think i was outside for no more than 12 minutes and it wasn't even like a particularly hot day but like you feel the weight of the air pressing down on you and your lips start to chap and so i just imagine he had a worse version of that and you know i can see that yeah and you know uh, i don't want to think about how just chapped his head must have gotten you know sunburned he did look pretty sunburned he he looked really burned yeah um Definitely looked like someone that needed to be taken care of a little bit. But clearly, he must have had someone that he was living with. And then they died. And then he just kind of did what he wanted to do, but forgot to drink water along the way. But we find out that he does get this bomb. He's taking it back. Yes, he is taking it back to Flag as basically it's, it's just a gift, I guess, to make up for the damage he did before. An apology gift, would you say? Yeah, it's an apology gift. He's just, I mean, he's bringing the man a bomb because it's the only thing he really knows how to do is bring out the bombs. Yeah. And then from here, there's a a brief little scene where they're cleaning up the blood on the ground and stuff. And then I think it's Lloyd. Clean up Nadine's mess, you know? Yes. Can't can't have the the other people looking at that. It's kind of demoralizing. I mean, how would you feel if your leader 
just came home with his so-called wife, only for her to jump out a window not even an hour later. Yeah, I can't imagine that would look very good for Flag's already kind of decaying vision. People are already kind of starting to lose their infatuation with him, which is crazy because we know how powerful he really is. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they're definitely losing a lot of faith and because that's kind of affecting him. It is. I I was starting to kind of speculate that just like um just like Robert Gray, like Pennywise himself, it seems that Flag seems to lose some of his power whenever he's undermined. It seems like he kind of feeds off of validation and confirmation and just having that power imbalance in general. And so to oh, have yeah. all these people kind of starting to lose their faith in him takes a toll, a really big toll on Randall Flagg. And you can see it with his his rage. Before this episode, he was a pretty well-composed. I mean, obviously oh, the man yeah. is crazy, but he was pretty uh, pretty composed, uh, pretty soft-spoken in the sense that he he knew what to say and what not to say. But then here he's just kind of going off the walls. He's definitely losing that edge he had over everybody, that control that he desired. But we'll yes. get into that when we get into the character more, when we yes. get to that section of the episode. After cleaning up, you know, her mess, how rude of her. Yeah, how rude of her. <laughs> uh, I, think the, I think the next scene is the fall. Not quite. We're almost there. I want to talk about that fall so bad. I know you do. Well, they're all sitting around the fire the night before. It's two It's two of his henchmen, basically, sitting around a fire, talking about flags, saying the same things that we already heard. But Tom Cullen is in the background, listening in, eavesdropping on their conversation. Oh, yeah. And then he He's, sees uh, the moon. flying in. Yes. And so I think and... he just kind of sleeps there behind them while, and as he's like spying on them. Or no, he actually ends up leaving. And then yeah. we flash forward to the scene that you've been wanting to talk about so badly, which happens in Utah, X utah And we're now on September 18th. So we're about three months from the start of the film, the first episode. Yeah, well, before that, we figure out why um, he keeps saying moon. And that's because they told him, come back when the moon is full. And the moon was full, which is why he keeps saying moon, M-O-O-N. Mm-hmm. And now we get back to my favorite part, or one of my favorite parts of the whole series, the tumble that brought down Stu. Yes. They get to um, an area that looks like it's eroding. There's a car down the hill. Definitely a little valley. I'd say it's a little valley. Yeah, I guess you just call it more of a valley. And they all go, And then the dog decides to go down there. And then they all follow, pretty happy about it, because they found another spot to camp out. Mm-hmm. And so they all make their way down. They camp out. They they talk about some things. And you can lead the way from here because I know this is your favorite part. So afterwards, they realize that they can't get up this valley because, you know, it's it's really steep. And so they decide to take this little offbeaten path. Stu climbs up and gets all cocky and takes the softest tumble I've ever seen in cinema but manages to break his leg long. Yeah, it's it's actually kind of sad because he makes it up kind of effortlessly. I mean, it's not the easiest climb in the world. But he does do it. He almost falls the first time, but he makes it up and then he's like, "Look at me, I can do it." 
Mm-hmm. And you just ah, that tumble was just so. It just it, it just didn't look like it would cause that much damage. It was maybe a eight foot drop. I'm just gonna say. It was about eight feet, yeah, and it didn't even look like he landed on his foot. Now, I will say, being a native and on up the res down here, I've seen dirt like that. I've fallen on dirt like that, and I've tumbled down, I'm going to say, at least 15 feet of it, playing with my cousins when they were younger, and it's just not enough to break your body. It's soft dirt, is it not? Yeah, 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 you can definitely just, you can definitely slide around in it. Yeah, but it's he... malleable. Mm-hmm. Not as malleable as Stu Redman's leg, though. Nah, that thing that thing breaks if an ant breathes on it. Yeah, it, it snapped like like almost as if he's a mal- malnourished for the past three months. Maybe he wasn't getting enough calcium. Maybe all all the milk went went bad. But he basically kind of just has his little. It's basically the end of his arc because at this point he's just kind of like, what's he gonna do? He has a broken leg. In the apocalypse, you have a broken leg and you're done for. Yep, but apparently that's the end of it. Can't make a can't make a uh, you know a little stretcher because apparently they said they can't do that. Mother mother said we can't do that. No, we can't do that. But thankfully, Glenn comes back with a six pack, not of beer, but of lukewarm Coca Cola. And my question is, all right, where did he get it from? And he said it's from a gas station down the road. Did he climb up the back hill to go get it? Because that was a pretty that looked now that looked steep. That did look pretty steep where he came down from, but I guess he was somehow more nimble than the 35-year-old man. You're telling me a man who's pushing like his 80s in the series can climb up a hill faster than the 30-year-old. Yeah, and he, I mean, he is kind of nimble. He seems like he's in good health mentally and physically because as we learn, he is a college, he was a college professor. Uh, well, not a lot of college professors are going out climbing valleys. I don't no, think uh, in, in their eighties, and not in a in that cool look. Is that a fedora he's wearing, or what is that hat called? He is. He's in a full suit. Yeah, he's in a full suit, which I don't consider that the best thing to be wearing in a hot Utah desert. But he wears it anyways. But from here, they decide that they're gonna have to leave Stu behind, which is sad. But they at least leave him with Kojak, and I'm assuming one or two more Coca Colas. Yeah, let's from not, the rest of the cans. Yeah, and let's not forget that they gave him the uh, the medication for Glenn's arthritis. I don't know if arthritis medication is supposed to mend a broken leg, but we know that Stu is going to be fine while he's here by himself. And so it's Glenn, Larry, and Ralph. They continue on to finish their quest where they head to Nevada. And when they get there, they're greeted by some armed guards of Slag. And all these guys are in surprisingly cool outfits. They actually do have some cool outfits, aside from the the police chief, who kind of annoys me. Yeah, he's a very stereotypical police guy who doesn't want to budge from his cop uniform of a plaid suit. Yeah, he type of guy that still cares about status when the whole world collapsed, basically. That's how I interpret he's, it. He's definitely the kind of man who, even though the world's gone, check out his stocks and bonds. Yes, no, he's he's still looking at his uh at his four hundred one k every day, making sure it's not going up or down. <laughs> but, um, we meet this. I could, I guess, you could say there are just a ragtag group of bikers who work for 
flag. Yeah, that, some this, pretty big ruffians. This was the squad that he had sent out to go and find the spy, but they instead found these three, and they arrest them. I don't think they really have the ability to arrest, but I don't think there's going to be any complaints about the Miranda rights not being spoken. Yeah, that's true. I mean, there's not really courts like that anymore, unless, you know, flags around. And so they're going to go see, they're going to be taking the flag, and they all get loaded up after Larry takes a few pops at the, uh, I guess we could say the sheriff's ego. Really knocks him down a few notches. Yeah, but, but then they hit him, too. They hit yeah. him right back for that. But of course, Glenn is a bit of a powerhouse. He doesn't really seem to care. But they bring him to the Clark County Jail in Las Vegas with a wonderful opening shot of a cockroach. So you know exactly that this is a very run-down jail cell that they're just using to hold them and to keep them contained. Mm-hmm. And here we see all, you know, good old Randall coming with all his swagger after Glenn gives a little bit of a heartwarming speech about a cockroach. Yes. And so... Randall comes in, kills said cockroach, and looks at Glenn and says that he can all leave. They can all leave if they get on their knees and beg. Yes, and I have to assume that that was never going to actually happen. He just wanted to see them beg. And Glenn kind of saw through that, I would say. Mm -hmm. And just kind of refused. And then, unfortunately... He does this weird little electric thing where he, like, surges arthritis through Glenn's veins. He, he definitely sped up his arthritis. You can see his fingers get a little swollen, and then he brings out Lloyd because Glenn won't give in to Randall and embarrasses Randall. Really yeah. attacks his ego here and orders Lloyd to shoot him, which he does. And that is the end of our friend Glenn. Yeah, it's very kind of melodramatic and it was a little sad. It was. He actually, he actually misses Glenn the first time he tries to shoot him. Let's not forget. I mean, how do you miss at that range? Come on, Lloyd. I have no idea. It's a little sad for Lloyd. But it also seems like Lloyd doesn't really want to kill Glenn. No, he says it's just a, it's just an old man. Yeah, exactly. Like, come on, respect the elders. And it's just... Uh... Sad to see Glenn go. I really didn't want Glenn to go. I thought he'd make the ultimate play, you know that you know he'd bring that wisdom to uh, the group. But he uh, he didn't. No, they didn't give him the opportunity. But he did stay true to his friends and was willing to go for them. He was. Yes, he he still kind of made a sacrifice in some ways, but still very sad. Um, Ralph and. Larry are holding hands through the cell, mourning the death of their friend Glenn. And then we come to a little scene showing Mother Abigail, which is the first time we've seen her since she died. Yeah. She gives a little speech. Yes. It's about the pale horse being ridden by death. You know, it was it was kind of strange when she says that, because I, this whole time I was thinking that Randall was the pale horse and the rider. Me as well, but... They're actually saying that Stu is the pale horse, the pale rider, correct? I, I assume that it wasn't Stu or just that someone's coming who is. And for me, when I saw, I immediately went to Trash Can Man because I figured that he had the bomb. Yes, that's fair. So 
he keeps on moving forward. We uh, see we get a wonderful little touching scene of Stu with the well, dog. Th- well, this is actually where he gets sick. Yeah. Remember, I think this is where Stu may have succumbed to that plague. The super flu. Yes. He he gets that super flu. We don't really know why he suddenly gets it. Maybe because he was left behind by his friends and that made him not safe from it. But he's almost able to climb back up the hill. Uh, Kojak tries to come over there and help him up the hill. But then he does. here we go and we see Tom Collin. Tom Collin is at the top of the hill. Here's Stu and pulls him up. Basically kind of saving him. Yeah. Touching moment. It is touching because as we know, as you may all know, we love Tom Cullen. Tom, Tom is just a gem. He's an absolute yes. gem. One of the strongest characters in the whole series, who I don't think got enough screen time, personally. And and next up, uh, I believe our other people. Um, yes. Ralph. Little Larry and Ralph. Ralph and Larry, They're being I mean, tied up to be put on this spectacle for uh, good old flag. Yeah, it's basically his little pep rally where he's just having them hung up. And it's almost like they're being crucified. But they're being transported in this military vehicle that's, like, locked on all sides. You know, like a a proper police escort. Mm Mm-hmm. Definitely putting on the show for everybody. We see the the character Ratman here. Yes. And he's just uh, there pointing a gun, waving it around in the faces of uh, Larry and Ralph. They get out and they get put on these upside down horseshoes. Yes. Very Las Vegas style execution. Basically, the whole town comes out to see this execution. Yeah. And the, Randall the comes out. Oh, yeah. Randall comes out. You know, ba- I was expecting him to have his own theme song, but he didn't. he didn't. He didn't play any music, which was kind of lame. They were able to get all the lights back on in the city, but no music, which was just disappointing. And, you know. He he says that they're going to be death by dismemberment. Yes, he's going to kill them. For the crimes of what they're going to do. Yeah, limb by limb. And yet this crowd is pretty happy to be seeing that. I mean, I guess they must get bored. And they want their free entertainment. I mean, yeah. I mean, who, you know, these guys are coming to destroy their whole town. I guess I'd be a little excited to see them go. Yeah. I mean, if, especially when, if they all believe that these two characters are the enemy. Then yeah, I guess that and, could be rather exciting. And it's here that we see um, Larry talk about, look at what he did, look at Flag. And they really all start to doubt him here. Everybody yeah. starts to lose their faith in Flag. Because Larry brings up some good points. He says, you know, would... Would this all-powerful guy really have done this? Would he really have forced people to do that? Would he have killed an old man, defenseless? Yeah, and then they they don't like it. The crowd seems a little bit mixed on how they feel in this moment, and you almost you almost start to see that uh, Randall Flagg is a little nervous. He's still cocky as ever. Yeah, I don't think he really ever loses that sense of arrogance, but he still seems kind of unnerved. Definitely. And and here's and what happens next, what follows next, is what really bothered me about this whole series, and that's the anticlimactic ending of what is to be. 
Yes. But before that, that be oh, go ahead. He, he does shock one of the, uh, the people in the crowd, just like uses, because someone comes out and goes, you got to stop this. You must put an end to this. And he zaps him. He electrocutes him with his finger, this old man in the crowd that's protesting what Randall Flagg is doing. You're, you're breaking up a little bit there. I think it's kind of interesting that you broke up at the time that you were talking about Randall Flagg electrocuting people. Oh, really? I broke up there? Yeah, it was very robotic. A little interesting, though. That is interesting. I'll have to go back and listen to that. <laughs> but, but no, yeah, he, he executes somebody, and everyone's kind of shocked. You can definitely see the extreme doubt in his followers. See, well, what I found interesting was that he shoots this little beam of electricity at him. But when he does that, there are about two frames where you can see the mouth of the guy that got electrocuted. And it, like, seals up as if it's, like, covered in, like, spider webs. I don't know if he noticed that little detail there. But you'll see when he gets shocked that he has, like, spider webs around his mouth and his voice gets really muffled. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that almost makes me kind of think of um, Pennywise with his whole spider layer. Yeah, that does make a lot of sense. I see where you're going with this. And so that was something I just realized just now, actually, because I don't think I noticed the first time that it, like, put this, like, web around his mouth. Almost silencing him. Yeah, completely silencing him before he killed him. And he does it's say my lips were sealed. Mm-hmm. It's, it's strange. I like that, though. Yeah, it's definitely a, it might be a connection between the two. Who knows? Yeah, I maybe that's the purpose, but we'll have to get into that after this. But next up, do you want to talk about the next scene? Because I know you do like yourself some good trash can, man. I do. I really want to talk about this scene. Up next comes my, one of my favorite people, Trash Can Man, rolling up. And we could see that I guess this A-bomb was giving out some sort of nuclear energy. His skin is falling off. He just looks decrepit now. He's looking uglier than he ever has. Probably extremely in pain. Takes off his glasses, which looks like, or his goggles, which looks like to be one of the most painstaking processes I've ever seen. Yeah, because it, it like almost like melts off of his face because he almost looks like the fly. Oh yeah, which, it's definitely that radiation from that bomb. Yeah, he so he was definitely being destroyed by that. And then uh, Julie Lowry yells, "It's a bomb!" And as she runs, she hits the person who was electrocuted. And then she gets electrocuted, and then she falls to the ground and dies. And then Trash Can Man takes off his glasses, which is really gross because his skin peels off when he does with it. it. Yes. And then he's going, for you, for you. He tells that he, he's going to give Flag this bomb. Flag wants him shot and killed. Lloyd goes down. And here comes the big reveal of what stops Flag. The yellow hand of God. Yeah, an actual deus ex machina, where a giant hand that looks almost like kind of like a force field grafts over the A-bomb. And here is where Ralph and Larry look at each other. They know it's the end. They're glad they made the journey. The, the hand goes to the bomb. Everybody freaks out. Flag, by this point, is already turned into his demon form, screaming at everybody, losing his, all his control. Everything that he's built is crumbling down in front of him. And the and onlookers... Into a raven. 
are terrified, yes. He turns into a raven, and the bomb explodes. Yes, but right before that, he does lose his temper and tells everyone to come back, to not run away, to accept what's happening. No, and he then, still thought that he had some control. Yes, but I, but then the um, that little electric force field that was over those two dead bodies is what turns into the hand. I don't you're think I right. And it's strange because I'm like, why? Why is it doing that? Yeah, we don't really know what happens here, unfortunately. We can't explain what this hand is or where it came from. I have to assume it's something that you could pick up strictly from the book because it's not explained, to us at least. It's very out there. It's odd, and it's not something that really is explained, like you said, and it it doesn't really feel that belonging to the series it's it's definitely a curveball thrown at you. It was it a curveball for me, and it was pretty anticlimactic. It I was. was like, well, why this out of nowhere? If this was the case, why didn't it happen sooner? You know, at, at any point in time before then. Yeah, we don't know what the hand of God is supposed to indicate because it was it could have been indicated through Mother Abigail's speech, but it wasn't. It just kind of happened. And now we get to that, and luckily, it blows up. We see Randall attempt to escape by turning into a raven or a crow. And we get a beautiful shot of Tom holding Stu as they watch the explosion. Yes, it lights up the whole screen, and basically everyone within like the whole range of Vegas can probably see what was happening. I think it's kind of interesting because, you know... Vegas is known as Sin City, so maybe it's symbolic for wiping out sin. Maybe, yeah. I, it wouldn't be something that Stephen King wouldn't do because he does like his religious imagery to an extent, I would say. Yeah. He likes his little illusions. From here, it's uh, Tom and Stu are trying to get back. Stu starts becoming more and more sick. Yeah, and they have him Stu. driving. As mm-hmm. he's coughing and struggling to stay alive, and then they, they get end to up... this... It's like a little cabin, hotel place, cabin, Green River Lodge. It's what it's called, and they have color the TV. The resort. Yes, it's a resort. Yeah, they got color. What? What? How is the TV going? That's what bothered me too. I was like, in the middle of the apocalypse, no one's out there manning that. <laughs> nope. It's just it's weird how I don't know how the electricity works. But I don't think the TV was actually on. They are using a a lantern to keep the light on. That's true. But then from here, it's kind of interesting. Um, Tom Colin thinks that the peanut butter and jelly sandwich was going to save Stu's life. But then he finds his medication. And he gives it to Stu. And it saves him, basically. It said, and this is an important key detail, where Tom Colin says that Nick Andros, in his dreams, told him how to save Stu. With this, me- with this life-saving medication that we can kind of conclude is the cure to the... Well, you skipped food. over a big part, and that's that we did see Stu. I'm sorry, we, I'm sorry, we did see Nick. Nick did come in a dream and was able to speak. Oh, shoot, you're right, yes. And in this scene, Nick tells him that he needs to take these, these pills. He believes it was four of them. In specific. Yes, be four, four specifically. 
and he gives them these pills and magically saves Stu, and they head back home. He explains that he does see Stu in his dreams, that he can talk to him. And after that, they head home, and it's snowing, and we get to see another cameo from the man himself, Stephen King, as a night watch gardener. Yes, he's basically waiting for people to come back. But he said it could either be the enemy or it could be the the good people. Stu and Tom and Larry. But yeah, before the that, did Nick Andros sound like he expected him to sound? Yeah, yeah, I thought he sounded like... Well, I saw Rob Lowe and I knew who Rob Lowe sounds like. Oh, yeah, well done. Never mind. I guess that's fair enough. But I, I do like that they made him kind of look angelic in the dream sequence, and then he holds Tom Colin's hand and takes him to the exit, to the main door. Mm-hmm. Almost like saying goodbye to his friend since he never got to. Since they never got the chance, yeah. But Tom very forcefully feeds him these pills. Yeah, that was a rough, that was a rough pill. And he gave him water like a minute later. Yeah, <laughs> I don't think Stu was very happy about it. But it did save him. It was actually able to keep him from dying. And I was worried because I like Stu. He was a cool character. And then the very next morning, Tom Collins sitting outside crying, assuming his friend is dead, that he wasn't able to save him. And then Stu walks out basically completely healed. Mm-hmm. Like a new man. His legs even almost better. He's walking on the cane. And then, they yeah. leave in a pickup truck with a snowmobile on the back. Yep, and then they get yep, to the snowmobile. Mm-hmm. And then they, they get, get to, to the free zone. Interesting name, the little free zone. It is cool. I want to know what that means, because I don't know much about Boulder, Colorado. Well, I think it was kind of like symbolizing that these people are free out of Randall's grasp. Okay, we're talking more like a fallout situation type, like a sanctuary. Yeah, yeah. And that's where we see the man himself, Stephen King, excited to see that Stu is back. And then Stu asks about Franny. And Stephen, you know, gets a little worried. Tells her he doesn't have to tell this. I was really worried that Franny died in this scene because we didn't have any knowledge of what happened. And that's when he lets her know that the baby came early. Yeah. And and that that, uh, Franny's okay, but the baby isn't. The baby's sick. Thinks that it got the flu. Yes. So they rush over. Everybody's worried. And miraculously, the baby's cured. Yeah. And then everything gets better. And they all have their nice moment where they're all standing outside looking at the baby and the little baby stroller thing. And they have a little little dissolve of Mother Abigail. I guess it's, it's more of a mask. It's a mask effect of Mother Abigail. I'd say a vision. They all see the same vision. Mm-hmm. And then there's this little cute montage of all the characters, <laughs> some of which we don't really know, which I thought was kind of funny. Yeah, they just throw they threw some random people at us, and I'm like, all right, <laughs> cool. They, yeah, they, they threw some names in there that we only saw for like half a second in the second episode. And Ooh, we, we are informed that Larry's wife that he chose in Boulder is pregnant as well. Mm-hmm. 
And the series ends on a high note of the baby being born and happy. Yes. Everything is going to be okay. And that, ladies and gentlemen, was the end of The Stand. Yes, the entirety of 1994 miniseries came to a rather slow, kind of frustrating conclusion. I don't mind the way it ended. I mean, I figured it was going to end with some little montage, cross dissolves. and But it was just the way that it kind of built up to it. I was expecting a huge fight between them. Something, you know, you know good versus evil. Very Stephen Kingy, like a lot of the, ma- the uh, films we see in the macroverse, but it wasn't. It was just an explosion. Like it said, like I said, doesn't this how the world ends? Like a whisper. Yeah, um, it definitely did feel rushed. That was that was my main draw from this. Yeah, it it really did. And with that, I think we should move on to the characters. Okay, let's, let's go. It. We are the Macroverse Maniacs, diving deep now into our character analysis. Welcome back, guys. If you're listening, we were talking about 1994's The Stand. We just talked about the rest, the, how the whole show ended, the rest of the episode. We're going to talk about a little bit more about the characters. And not a lot really happened to the characters. You know, you could say a lot of development. But we could say a few had some key points that confirmed what we suspected all along. Yes. Like, so for example, of... uh, Larry. Yeah. What about him? I would say that, you know, ultimately he, he did step up as that leader because Stu fell down, like I said, that I thought he would. And he did step up as a leader, took control, and was willing to make that sacrifice play, like I said. Yes. And then we did have some other speculations. I think we both knew that Tom Cullen was going to make it to the end. But we also did, from the very beginning, believe that Nick Andros was going to be, like, the saving grace, the sacrifice that the film needed to kind of win the battle. And that didn't happen, unfortunately. No, he was taken out by Harold. He was taken out by a completely unrelated explosion. (sighs) Which was interesting, though, because... The, the presence of the bombs, there was the bomb that Harold made, and then there was the bomb that Trash Can Man found. Hmm. And I think it's interesting, kind of like, you know, it, it kind of did rock both worlds. Yes, definitely. But maybe it was symbolic, you know. I, I'm going to say it like this, you know, like the end of the world happened, essentially. And Flag's world got destroyed in a big bang. And the Big Bang brings forth new life, a new beginning, and that's where it leaves our characters. Does that make sense? It does, yes. Um, I think one of the other things that we believed, we also were kind of under the impression that Harold was going to play a bit of a bigger role towards the end. We kind of both expected for him to step up and make a difference, but it turned out he just kind of died in vain. He did. I was really expecting him to really be an underling of Flag, only to have, have him fall out because Flag didn't want anything to do with him. Yeah, not at all. He had no interest in Harold. I think it was the jacket. Ah, definitely. He, because Flag had some great fashion. He, he did. knew what he was doing. He had the cool hair that I personally admire now that I've gone into my long hair era, which I've never had before. Welcome to the club. <laughs> 
<laughs> with my beautiful long hair as well. But yeah, you know, Flag didn't want anything to do with him, and he's gone. I I really didn't expect Nadine to go out the way she did. No, I did not expect for her to just jump off a ledge like that. That was a little bit unexpected, but it it did make sense considering everything that happened before. It was definitely a, it was definitely something that I could see happening. But for Nadine's character, I expect her to be a little bit more strong, a little bit more, um, I guess you could say wicked in a way, have play more of a role in getting rid of, you know, these three people coming. But she didn't. She kind of sided with them at the end. Yeah, but I mean, at, at the same time, she was also extinguishing the future generation of Flag. That's true. And, you know, I guess she'd sacrifice herself in a good vein. Yeah. And I was really sad to see Larry go. I was too. It was it was a bit sad to see some of our favorite characters just kind of be swept away like that. It, Glenn struck a chord with me. Like when he died, I, I will admit I teared up a bit. And I think that his development altogether was really well put together. Glenn was just a solid supporting character, really helped out where he needed to, and he died protecting his friends. Yeah, he was one of the few characters that actually really stepped up towards the end. Although I will say it does seem like most of the cast does step up. They, they really do. They all find their own little nation where they belong at the very end. And we see Tom, he had a pretty big you know, change, I would say, too. He, in a way, was really stepping up as taking care of everybody into his own leadership role. A role that I didn't think that he would really step up into. But he did. Yeah, it almost seems like he was put into a world where he actually fit in pretty well, I would say. Because he and, went from kind of being, you know, yeah, he was, yeah, you're he was right. dependent upon his family before they died, and then he lost his family, and then he realized that he did have purpose. He was able to make those sacrifices. He was able to, you know, he was able to keep uh, Stu alive. And I think it's kind of cool that, you know, he gained a new family in a way, a family that needed him. Yes. Instead of the other way around. Mm-hmm. And for me, you know, Ralph, you know, Ralph was just kind of Ralph. Ralph was Ralph, yeah. But he still, didn't have still much to but he did step no. up. Yeah, I, I mean, I would like to see a little bit more from him, just because he was kind of one note. He was just like older man that was a farmer at one point in his life, and that was it. Now let's talk about someone who we both know we were going to spend a lot of time about with this part of the uh, show, Randall. Oh, dear Lord. Do we have a lot to say about him? Now, we can kind of glaze over Lloyd in the sense that Lloyd didn't really change much aside from losing faith in Randall at the end. Trash Can Man, he was loyal to Randall at the end. You know, he they both were on the same level, I think. Yeah. But Randall... It was interesting to see his development from a calm, clear, manipulative man into a desperate, angry being. Yeah, 100%. It was very, very interesting to kind of see that change happen because he was so composed and powerful and cocky. And, and it, was, it was interesting to see it all crumble down. And to me, I think that you, it brings up a point that me and you were discussing earlier when discussing the show. And that's that Randall might have needed faith in order to gain his powers. Yes, I I noted it as Flag seems to lose a lot of power when he's undermined by other people. 
And, we and do I think know, that plays a key role because, like, you know, you're right. He was really powerful when everybody believed in him. He was getting things done. People were security. There was a sense of thriving in Las Vegas. And everybody seemed to get what they want. And then as soon as people started doubting him, everything started to fall apart. Yeah. Everything and, did hit. And it was interesting to see that his true form. I, I did like seeing that. I liked that they actually showed his like demon self, his interdimensional self. And it's not a pretty sight. No, it was actually pretty terrifying. Like I said before, it's like looking at like like an ant in a microscope where it has like that weird kind of figure with like the horns. And he lost his hair. Oh yeah, his hair disappeared. His face kind of was rotting. And it was terrifying. It's obvious now why he doesn't show that side of him very often. Because it is not something that humans are meant to comprehend. And it's almost at the end of everything. Randall is just so desperate that he doesn't care about anyone anymore. He lost control. And he's begging them almost not to leave. He was, yeah. It was very pitiful. He was like, he was basically begging his audience to not move on with their lives. And of course, they never actually got the chance to. No. Considering no one all... said they uh they blew up. Yeah, they they all blew up rather quickly. But it was it was strange to see how Rand, how fast Randall lost control in the face of a pretty minor threat really if you think about it. Yeah, because these characters really aren't that powerful. They're not that capable. It was really and I believe, luck. I believe they questioned like what do we do when we find them? What yeah, can we really do to flag? It honestly felt like the uh, the main characters felt like they were kind of doomed from the start, but they knew that they had to do it regardless. And none... yeah, you're right. Yeah, go on. None of those characters were really shocked by the idea of death. They kind of seemed like they embraced it very early on. And to see flags change really kind of upset me because I, you know, I I, I always like bad guys as I always say, and seeing him go from that to that low it was kind of disappointing to me i was like you know you could have done a lot more to stop this yeah he really was pretty hands off with most of everything going on he really just liked to tell people what to do yeah a, de- a, a definite supervisor 100% but with that i think that's really all the characters we should really talk about cuz that's that was kind of it i think so yeah um most of the characters we would have talked about are dead. Yeah. Yeah, so let's talk about how this affects the macroverse. We've talked plot We've discussed the characters, and by this point, you know how we feel about the Stephen King adaptation. Now, it's time for our favorite part of the Into the Macroverse episode, where we bring up our theories and beliefs about how everything happening within this universe is a part of something bigger. That is right, folks. It's Macroverse Theory Time. Well... It affects the universe a ton. 
But we were talking earlier about that theory that it all takes place in different universes. And you mentioned this this before the recording started. Do you want to talk more about that? Yeah, you had a thought, a theory. And as you know, in the macroverse, we love theories and what people think about. And if you have your own theories, be sure to send them in to us. And we'll definitely talk about them on the show as well. And Jacob had a theory saying that what if there are multiple universes within the macroverse? And that got me thinking about pocket universes within universes. And I'm thinking Randall Flagg is able to move about different ones because of the events that happened in Children of the Corn and him being there and the events that happened out here in The Stand. Because as we can see in the universe of The Stand, everyone is dead. And with that thought, maybe, you know, that it's, no, it's highly unlikely that the Children of the Corn would still be there. No, I, I doubt it. And that's what kind of made us all speculate that it's all happening in different little pockets of the universe at different times. And I think what this means for the macroverse, this episode as a whole, is that Randall Flagg can cross universes and be there, as we've noted many times, because of his ravens. And, much like other creatures within the macroverse, requires a form of belief. And that, and that he's so powerful because many universes believe in, them, in him in their own way. Yeah, and it, it's fascinating how it really works that way. Truly it is. And I think for the macroverse, this means that everybody has their own form of flag around them. That he is everywhere at once. Yes and travel yes. between dimensions, has a form, has different forms as we've seen, because he was able to turn into that scarecrow monster, which got me thinking about Children of the Corn, because he had a lot of uh, scarecrowish features about him. Yeah, because in, one of his forms. in the Children of the Corn, they viewed him as a god. He who walks behind the rose was someone they believed in very firmly, and that's where you see his power kind of peak. And, and much like the Stan, once that faith was gone, so was he. Mm-hmm. So that, that leaves me to think in the realm of the macroverse, which is the universe in which all of Stephen King's works exist and how they coexist within each other and cross over. I think the many universes collide at times, thus allowing that crossover between. Yeah. So there's some sort of warp going on. Absolutely. And I think we can really delve into that with the Dark Tower. Yes. Which I think we should start looking at next. We do need to do that next. And I think that was in our roadmap, because we do have a roadmap floating around that we were trying to figure out what's the best order to go from here. Because we are now in August of 2022. We started this in March. We did. I don't know, I think it was March. It was March. I think the first recording was like, the 18th. But I think it's kind of interesting that we go and find our own place because much like the macroverse and everybody taking this journey with us, it's always ever-evolving and changing. And Constantly. what universe we end up next is always going to be a mystery. It is. And that's what's so fun about the way we do this where we, we don't really acknowledge the books much. Because no. we try to do as much as we can with the, with the material presented to, to us through Stephen King's scripts because he's in, he's in charge of writing all of these scripts for all these adaptations. And since he's the one writing it, you can assume that basically everything happening is pretty canon to the book universe. To a degree. 
Yeah, to a degree. It definitely feels like we're missing pieces, especially with this series. We're missing a lot of pieces. But I think what uh, what this means for the macroverse is that within these universes he creates, or within smaller universes, pocket verses, and yes. I think the Dark Tower is a perfect segue to go from flag, from two flag episodes to going to, I'm sorry, two flag interpretations to the Mac and to uh, the Dark Tower where the macroverse is almost at the center. This is like the big shebang of it all and where it leads out. Yes, everything that we've tried to research with all these films, it all connects to the Dark Tower. And unfortunately, there is only one adaptation that has been made, and I don't think there are too many more in the works. But the Dark Tower is the epicenter of everything within the macroverse, which is crazy considering it feels like the stand is the epicenter of the universe. But it's not. No, it isn't. And I'm going to leave the audience with this question. If Flag can be everywhere at once, does he serve somebody? And what is the purpose of the Dark Tower? And does it control these other universes? I really like that question. It definitely leaves you with a lot to think about. So until next time, I'm Levi. And I'm Jacob. And this has been Into, into the Macroverse. Macroverse. You've been listening to Levi Hill and Jacob Willett, and this has been a speculative dive into yet another one of Stephen King's twisted tales. So don't trust that sound you hear. Always keep a watchful eye, and don't look under the bed, because you never know what you may stumble upon when you wander your way into the macroverse.